Welcome back to another edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, Movie Shark DeBlore. You can find me at MovieSharkDeBlore.com on Examiner, Culver City Observer, uh, Beacon Times, Chain, Columbus Register, Santa Monica Observer, Delray News, British Weekly. You find me. I'm out there. But every Monday you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio with Behind the Lens. And this is our post-Golden Globes Monday Quite an interesting <clears throat> Golden Globes yesterday. Quite an interesting weekend uh, all, all together because no sooner do we have all of the Golden Globe winners announced than we all got uh, get the, the sad news that uh, music legend, innovator, icon David Bowie passed away. Um, that is a real loss. And uh, my heart goes out to uh, his son, Dustin, whom I've had the pleasure of interviewing in the past and know. So condolences and sympathies, and uh, David has left a, a huge legacy for generations to come and has been responsible for influencing film and music. So it is, it's, a, it's a sad day in that respect. On the other hand, Golden Globes last night uh, gave us some very exciting moments uh, for television fans and music fans. Lady Gaga picked up an Emmy. Uh, but I think the award that moved, ev- possibly moved everybody the most was Sylvester Stallone winning the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor for his work in Creed, uh, for his performance as Rocky Balboa, a role that he created 40 years ago, his last time at the Golden Globes. But this was his first time as an actor, and he won. Um, he referred to Rocky as his best imaginary friend, and having worked with Sly before, I think that is a very safe and true assessment that he made of himself. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio picked up a win for his performance in The Revenant. And as I've said before, if you've read my review that's uh, already out there, his performance is great. It is the best of his career, but it is not the best of The Revenant. Uh, That honor really belongs to Tom Hardy. Uh, We're going to get into The Revenant a little bit more with my exclusive interview with the incomparable Emmanuel Chivo Lubezki, cinematographer. But just want to let you know, on today's show, two fabulous guests will be with us live. First of all, director Judy Chaikin, uh, the director of The Girls in the Band. For those, Some of you may have caught it on its theatrical le- release last year or on the festival circuit. An incredible documentary about all of the female musicians hearkening back to the 20s and 30s and coming on up and their influence up through and including the present day. Uh, everybody thinks of musicians of the big band and jazz era as being men, but oh no, there were plenty of women, uh, one of whom was Louis Armstrong's wife, another one who was an arranger for Dizzy Gillespie, um, others that had all-girl bands, and... While they were more prevalent, all female bands were and musicians were more prevalent in Europe uh, during World War II. There were plenty of them to be found here in the United States, 
And we're going to talk to Judy about her her research trip to dig up all these incredible women and the history uh, and hear what she has to say about that experience. Uh, and then we have Arturo Mouchant. Uh, I hope I said his last name right. He'll correct me if not. Uh, he's going to be talking about his latest film, The Pastor. Uh, Arturo is writer. He was a story creator of that producer, and he stars in the film. And it's a very inspirational film. The story is about uh, a gangbanger. He goes to prison. He gets knifed in prison, but there is a, a prison pastor who takes an interest in him and shows him a different way. And on his release, he has become a pastor himself and is trying to clean up his old community. Uh, so it's really a very well done film. Uh, and it's also done through Arturo's production company of Wolfgang Cinema that promotes films that educate, entertain, and inspire. So he'll be joining us at the half hour mark. So I can't wait to talk to him as well. But uh, also this weekend was the Spirit Award nominees brunch. Uh, it was a lovely soiree, and it was uh, fun to catch up with director James Ponsolt, the director of End of the Tour, and also, as luck would have it, he directed Brie Larson in The Spectacular Now, and Brie went on to win a Golden Globe yes, last night for her performance in Room. Uh, so, and if we get to it today, there is some of my exclusive interview with James uh, on the end of the tour. If not, we have time before the Spirit Awards which uh, in February, which is the day before the Oscars. As a reminder, Oscar nominations are out this coming Thursday morning. Uh, but right now, let's talk a little more about The Revenant. The Revenant is, it truly, it so well-deserving of its Golden Globes last night, both for director uh, Alejandro Iñárritu and as best dramatic feature. Absolutely stunning, stunning film. This is all about the imagery, the imagery and the emotion of the imagery. And that duty fell to, to Chivo Lubezki. And Chivo and Alejandro are one of the most successful directing cinematography pairs, I think, in the industry, uh, rivaling possibly Spielberg and Janice Kaminsky. Um, there is nothing that Chivo can't lens. And for The Revenant, he, opted, he and Alejandro discussed it and opted for all-natural lighting. No light, external lighting is used. It is strictly natural lighting. But hand-in-hand hand with natural lighting, you've got to have equipment. You've got to have a camera that can accommodate that, especially when you're going into snow-covered mountains regions. And as you'll hear during some of these uh, uh, interview excerpts, they were 9,000 feet up atop a mountain in the middle of a blizzard shooting. And the camera that they were shooting with is the relatively new Alexa 65. And I asked Chivo about the Alexa, Alexa 65, because it was new to me. I hadn't even seen it at uh, an NAB convention. So I was as excited to learn about his experience using it as I hope you will be. No, the Alexa 65 is incredible. Um, you know, we were very lucky that when we, we had already started the shoot when we got the call from Mary saying, we have a camera. And uh, almost without testing it, they, they brought it to 
to. Well, I mean, they did test yeah. the camera. They were very sure the camera was working, but for me, almost without testing it, I, I just shot a couple of frames and we loved it. And when Alejandro saw it, he said, "We have to have it. We gotta have it." <laughs> and um, we we had already sent film back to mm -hmm. Hollywood because. Uh, film was just not getting what what we what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. It's not sensitive enough, and it was getting grainy. And we were shooting very very late. There's a mm -hmm. lot of of shots in the movie that are past dusk, you know, sure. very late. So the the digital cameras were able to give us a beautiful, uh, very clean, immersive uh, mm -hmm. image that we were very keen on. And then when the 65 came. First I said, well, we'll use it only for landscapes and big vistas. And then we were like, well, maybe a big vista and this scene and maybe this scene. And so little by little, it almost took over the movie. Because it's so immersive. It's something that, it's the first camera that I work with that really uh, almost translates to 100% what you're feeling when you're in mm -hmm. the location. How many times you go to, you know, the Great Canyon or the Yosemite and you're going to take a photo and you go like, why is yeah, it's this like, doesn't capture anything? Why is that it doesn't feel the way it feels when yeah. you're there? This camera does it. So it was just, uh, I think it's going to be a, a game changer and everybody's mm -hmm. going to start to using it more and more. And, you know, I'm so thrilled seeing this film on the Alexa 65. I can't wait to see who else is out there using it. Uh, because most recently, some people gravitated to the Sony F7, um, which can shoot in really low light and present a beautiful, beautiful image, but nothing like the Alexa. But you heard Chivo just mention that untested. Well, the camera was tested, but there is a very entertaining anecdote that he shared with me about the Arri Alexa and how it actually came into his hands. Ari, sometimes when they don't feel the camera is done and ready, they don't break they, it out. They don't break it out. They are very responsible about that. Oh, very much so. And then, but what happened? I don't know if I should tell you this story, but maybe so. I mean, if it's okay, it's when they brought the camera. The camera had not passed the FCC, mm -hmm. and I don't know what that means, honestly. For me, what it meant is that we could not use it because if there was an issue, the insurance would not mm -hmm. pay. And, um, but we did a, a couple more tests, invited uh, Brad Weston and the studio to see it, and obviously Alejandro, and everybody was like, oh shit, we gotta use this. We have to use it. Mm -hmm. So little by little we started using it, then we got the call, it's FCC approved, and boom! Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my god. Yeah, I was very happy and lucky that these guys made. So and I'm not geeky in the sense that um, I mean, not because it's new, I would use it. You know, I'm not looking for the new thing. No, you're looking for what's going to deliver what you need. Exactly, exactly. And in that camera, in one minute, we were like, this is it. So, bless those people at Ari for making this camera and getting it into the hands of Chivo and Alejandro for The Revenant. Because for those of you that have seen the film, for those of you that have yet to see it, uh, just went on a wider release this past weekend, and now with the Golden Globes wins, and I'm sure what will prove to be Oscar nominations come Thursday, the film, Fox will continue its releasing schedule and take it ever wider. Um, bear in mind, there is very little dialogue in this film. Uh, the opening, The opening scenes, 
there is establishing dialogue between the characters. You get some backstory. But the bulk of the film, as you've seen from trailers and as you've already heard uh, from so many people, the bulk of it is watching Leonardo DiCaprio's struggle to survive after being mauled by a bear and left for dead. Um, and his vocal cords, is his th throat has been shredded, which precludes speaking. And there's no one around him to even speak to. So dialogue is not the watchword of the day. It is expressiveness, uh, emotional expressiveness through the visuals, through the physical performances. So this is what Alejandro had to say about the lack of dialogue and how that infused the emotional palette. But there's almost no dialogue. Because there's almost no dialogue. So what Alejandro, I think what is amazing about Alejandro is, number one, that he is a few of the great directors that trust the audience. Yeah. So he is showing all these, um, and there is no dialogue, and he's not afraid. He doesn't have to feed information to the audience. There, there, ha there doesn't have to be there has not to be, he doesn't need explanation there hasn't mm -hmm. he doesn't need it he trusts that the moods and the 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 emotions are going to be you know that the audience are going to get all these emotions mm -hmm. by going through the journey of watching mm -hmm. the movie and experience it experiencing the movie objectively but also subjectively mm -hmm. through the eyes of 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 glass well, we're going to come back to more from Chivo uh, Lubeski and The Revenant uh, in a little bit. Right now, I am so thrilled to welcome the wonderful Judy Chaikin to Behind the Lens. Hi, Judy. Hello, Debbie. How are you? I am so thrilled to be talking to you. Our schedules didn't mesh when you were doing the press tour for the theatrical release, so I didn't get to talk to you then. I am so happy to get to talk to you now about the girls in the band. Well, thank you. And I'm happy to get to talk to you, too. I fell in love with the film when I first saw it. I have now watched it three more times since. Uh, wow. Well, I watched it again this morning at 2.30 this morning, just to refresh, oh refresh me to talk to you today. This, but, you know, yes. No, go ahead. You know, that's one of the phenomenons of this film. People want to see it more than once because it's got so much information in it that they've never heard before that it's hard to take it all in at one time. I mean, it is it is toe-tapping. You've got constant, you know, virtually music through the entire film from beginning to end with very few patches that don't have the ambient sound in the background. And you just, you find yourself moving in the chair as you're watching this film, and you're listening to these legendary ladies talk about being musicians. It, yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful package. But now this, I know you come from a family of musicians. and. Right. For some reason, you know, you have this affectation and affection for big bands. Right. And I'm loving this so far when I first heard about the film. This is all like, okay, <laughs> this this is my kind of film here. Um, well. What led you 
to explore the female musicians of the jazz and big band era and then take it on that trajectory up to the present day. Well, you know, as a filmmaker, you're, you're always hoping that something's going to come along that really grabs you on many, many levels because it's so hard to make a film and you have to stay with it for so long that it really has to have something at the core of it that speaks to the core of you. So coming from a family of musicians, having studied music as a child, having played trumpet in the junior high school band, and having been kind of uh, rejected by the boys in the band, <laughs> it, it, this, this topic was, was just in, lying in wait inside of me for something to tap it. And what happened was a friend of mine called me up one day and said that she had met a woman a woman who said she was had been a, a big band drummer in the 40s, and the woman was now in her late 80s, early 90s, I think. Mm-hmm. And I said to my friend, I don't think so, because, you know, I've been a big band fan <laughs> all my life. I've never heard of a woman playing in any big band as a singer. Mm-hmm. So she said, well, well, that's what this woman said. So we looked her up online, and it turned out that she had been with an all-girl band in the 40s. And that kind of started me off on, on a path saying, wow, were there actually women who made it into big bands and had careers in big bands? And lo and behold, we uncovered this hidden story that just really tapped right into everything that I'm all about. I mean, this story and these women are so phenomenal. Um, I was familiar with the fact that there were all, all many all-girl bands in England during World War II. That, right. you know, I had heard about and known about for years. But like you, never in the United States, never heard about any females playing with Thelonious Monk or uh, in the jazz days or you know, anybody, as you said, with the big bands, um, right. with the Dorseys. I mean... There were never any females around unless they were singing. So this, to see it unfold, is fabulous. Yeah, yeah, it's the hidden story. And it all has to do with the fact that uh, jazz has very little respect in the United States. Mm -hmm. It it never has had a real popular uh, following. It has never been um, something that people could make a lot of money on, so it became uh, a, a driving force in our cultural life. Mm-hmm. But in Europe and in England, where there were many women bands, <clears throat> jazz is highly respected, highly loved, mm-hmm. and people know about it. So those bands did get a little more publicity than our local bands did. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you go about, once you started your internet track and say, oh, this is legitimate, there really are these women. How did you go about finding them, especially given their advanced ages now? You yeah, know, we and- really got there at the last minute because about 50% of the women that we interviewed in the film have passed away mm-hmm. since we did the film. So we feel honored that we were able to give back to these women some of what they had never had during their lifetime. And <clears throat> the way we did it is, I, I live in uh, Los Angeles, which has a huge music community. Mm-hmm. 
And when we started doing our research, we discovered that a couple of the women who we were researching were actually from the Los Angeles area. And so we tracked them down and started conversations with them. And some of them were a little leery of us because other people had approached them about this idea over the years and nothing had ever come of it. But when we convinced them that we were going to really do this film, they then started introducing us to other people. So one person led to another person, and we discovered this entire inside circle of a community of women musicians who some knew each other, some had never even heard of each other, but they all led us one to the other, and that's how we found our cast of characters. Well, hand-in-hand with your cast of characters and the fabulous interviews uh, that you have with so many of them, is the archival footage that you and photos you had managed to unearth. How was that treasure hunt for you? Because every, every image that you have, I consider to be a treasure. Well, it, that, that was one of the major parts. The two major parts of making the film were the years that it took us to raise the money to do it, because, you know, there is no support for this in the United States. Mm-hmm. although people in Canada and all over the rest of the world fund films like this from their government, we had to raise the money and do the research all on our own. So the research took a team of five researchers, mm-hmm. and it took us three years to do just the basic research. Wow. So, and we went all over the world to find these pieces. A lot of them were found in Europe because that's where a lot of the jazz music had been played at and people had fortunately recorded, uh, visually recorded some of it. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge, huge um, process. Uh, a lot of stuff was found in the National Archives and in the Smithsonian. Uh, fortunately, we do have um, respect for the history of our country. Mm-hmm. And in those organizations, we did find some of our footage. Now, how did you go about deciding on your stream of consciousness and your and your construct of the documentary as you started getting putting these pieces together? Because so important here, this isn't just a story or a retrospective of these female musicians. You tackle in here the issues that have, you know, plagued this country for decades: sexism, racism. Uh, appearing in places, you know, like the Apollo Theater or, you know, having an African-American member of a band and somebody in the South not wanting them to play. You tackle all of these issues that are so much a part of society and history for us. But there's a great continuity and a great flow to that. And that could not have been easy to develop. Uh, Well, I have to say it was working with my... uh, a uh, wonderful editor, Edward Osejima. This a document. You don't start out in advance knowing what your documentary is going to be about. At least I don't. The way that I work is, I try to let it unfold and tell the story to me. And the story that it kept telling me was that these women were not uh, in, uh, experiencing this in isolation. They were experiencing this as part of the larger 
sociological situation at the time for women. So it felt important for me to put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. And I did. All these other things came into play because they were part of the world in which this was all happening. I mean, it's a fabulous anthropological study as well about society of, of the time. Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> you know, I hope that it has resonance on other levels and people who don't necessarily love jazz but are interested in the sociology of our culture find something in it. Well, and whether people don't, you know, don't gravitate to jazz, I, uh, you know, anybody that likes music needs to understand that so much of the core of what we now have stemmed from that. It stemmed from jazz. Absolutely. Jazz morphed, it morphed into big bands, morphed into, into rock, you know, and it's taken on so many dimensions, but at the core, when you go back, and I think any composer would tell, would tell someone this, jazz is a foundation for so much of the musicality that we now have. Well, I think jazz is our version of classical music. Yes. So, uh, you know, to understand jazz is to understand everything about mm. music. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the fascinating things that I learned about this documentary was when you needed financing, two partic- men in particular came forward with some kind of financing for you. Herb Albert, which doesn't surprise me, but yes. Hugh Hefner. Yes, Hugh Hefner. Well, um, Hugh Hefner, besides, besides his obvious love of women, has also been a major supporter of jazz. You know, he mm-hmm. has the... Playboy um, Jazz Festival. Playboy Jazz Festival <laughs> here in Los Angeles, a huge event every year. And he used to have a television show called Playboy After Dark, mm-hmm. which featured jazz musicians. He has always been a big supporter of jazz. So when we were fortunate enough to get this project to him, uh, he responded to it very positively and was very supportive of us and a real friend of the project all along the way. Oh, I mean, uh, I know of his great love, and I've been to the Playboy Jazz Festival numerous times at the Hollywood Ball. and. It is it is a world class event, and he has a lot of women jazz musicians. He does at the jazz festival. He, so he does. He puts his money where his mouth is. <laughs> I think so that's. We can always say that about him. He loves women. He promotes women in yes. many shapes and forms. Exactly. Exactly. And he does celebrate the arts. He is a very big supporter of the arts. And it's thanks to to people like him. And and Herb Alpert, who better than to... Yeah, well, Herb Herb has been a wonderful uh, supporter and fan for many years. He was uh, one of the people who helped finance my very first documentary, which was called Legacy of the Hollywood Blacklist, which was about the blacklist Which is, I have told so many people, they need to find that and see it, and see it in conjunction with Trumbo. Yes. Definitely. Well, it's now online too. Legacy of the Hollywood Blacklist. If you look it up, uh, it can. It's streaming now. Oh, I didn't know it was streaming. I can go back and see it again. Is what you're telling me? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, just look up Legacy of the Hollywood Blacklist, or look up Judy Chaikin online, and 
something will come up about my website, and then you'll find streaming there. Uh, because that's another one. That's I was first introduced to you, th- your work, through the the blacklist. Oh, thank you. And, you know, for me, once when Trumbo came out, this was like a perfect marriage of fact and semi-fact to, yeah. as, as viewing companions. And for there's so many people, and it surprised me, they had no clue what the blacklist was. You know, I, it it constantly surprises me. And I made that film many years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, fortunately it was nominated for an Emmy, and it had a wonderful run, and especially it played in a lot of colleges. And then recently, because of Trumbo, I got interviewed by somebody at the New York Times, and it was a young woman who had graduated from, I think, Cornell, and had graduated in a... Um, a political science degree, mm-hmm. and had never heard about the blacklist. She was interviewing me for Trumbo and <sighs> never heard about the blacklist in college. That, I, it still shocked me. That's frightening. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that is the word, Judy. That is frightening. And I, and I encountered it throughout the press tour for Trumbo um, uh-huh. with press that had no clue. The, wow. And I'm like, how can you sit here? And not this is such an integral part, not only of our history, but of cinema's history. You know, there's something about this country's uh, love of everything new that makes us, you know, kind of blind to the fact that we have a history that is very vital and very mm-hmm. important. But, you know, people are so involved with what's new that they forget. But what's old is a value. And they forget that you don't get the new without having the past to understand exactly. the present and to go forward into the future with the new. Exactly. And exactly. that and that's you know, that is something that I see unfold beautifully with the girls in the band is we go from the past right up to the present. That's and, right. People like uh, you know, Esperanza Spalding and uh, you know, they didn't come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they came from a history. Yep. Now, if you have to, had to look at every, all your interviews and all the, the little nuggets and gems of history that you uncovered in making the girls in the band, do you have a favorite, a favorite artist, a favorite composer or arranger or woman that you discovered through this film? Yeah, I'd have to say that... that Vi Red, Vi Red, who was a saxophone player, um, who got absolutely no recognition historically. And when we went back, we found some footage of her playing with the Count Basie band in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we were absolutely blown away. The woman had a gigantic talent. Mm-hmm. And so little has ever been recorded of her, and there's so little memory of her. It it's it was tragic, and her playing is so incredible. So you know, here was a giant talent who has just gone completely unnoticed. Mm. Yeah, I she was one that stood out for me, and also Melba Liston. And uh, Melba, yes, she. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the only thing about, you know, Melba Liston and Mary Lou Williams and these women who are really brilliant artists 
at least Melba and uh, Mary Lou had a little bit of recording done on them and had some a little bit of a career. Mm-hmm. Vi Red's career was so short and so uh, unrecognized that that that's the one that really stood out for me as a great tragedy. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I have to say, one of my favorites was Lil Harden. And yeah. the beautiful montage that that Edward did, you know, with all the covers of Just for a Thrill, which we still hear today. Yes. We, yeah. And that, that's one of my favorite parts of the film, too. Yeah. Oh, Judy, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has been this is a real treat. I would love to sit down and talk to you again more in depth about the girls in the band and the blacklist. Well, thank you, Debbie. I just want to say before we go off that we have just released what's uh, a collector's edition of the DVD, and it can be found online at thegirlsintheband.com, and it includes a lot of the footage that we were unable to put into the film. So if people are interested in this era, interested in the film, I would highly suggest that they uh, take a look at our collector's edition. Well, you know... www.thegirlsintheband.com Well, you know what I'm going to be doing this afternoon when I get home. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Judy, thank you so much. And I hope that you will join me again on the show sometime. Anytime. I'd love to be your guest. I'm glad we finally got together. So am I. Thank you so much, Judy. Bye-bye. Everybody who's missing David Bowie today. I know. I know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Judy Chaikin, director of The Girls in the Band. And now, now we have the supremely talented Arturo Mwishant. Is that how I say your last name, Arturo? Arturo, can you hear us? Oh, we may be having phone issues here. Are we? We're finding out if we have phone issues. Brian is on top of it right now in the studio. And we're waiting. And we're waiting. Don't worry, I can I can just ramble while we figure out what's happening with the phone. Now, oh, we're still... Oh, he's he's still working on things. So I'm getting the stretch, the stretch. Let's go back to clips. Let, oh, you want to go back to clips? Okay, well, we can go back to clips. Uh, and we're going to pick up with... We're going to go uh, back to The Revenant with uh, creating the point, the shifting point of view and the framing of lensing by Chivo Lubezki. So that's clip four, Brian. That's what we tried to do, you know, that we thought that that was a way of uh, immersing the audience in this world. And, 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 and in reality, there are no rules and regulations. You cannot get a little book that says, oh, <laughs> let's da-da-da, use it for da-da-da-da. So what I love about Alejandro, again, that I admire this guy so much, is that he really takes everybody in the tightrope close to the cliff and he says well that's what I feel is working so yeah. just get in and and let's use these wide lenses to, to be able to have a relationship between 
these actors and the environment mm -hmm. constantly and to be able as you were saying to to shift the point of views to go from a su subjective shot to an objective mm -hmm. and then to the subjective of another character mm -hmm. and and i think that way you you get immersed in very in much the, so. you are the story it was as if and we'll come back to The Revenant again, and I'll follow up with discussion. But right now, I think we have Arturo back on the line. Are you there, Arturo? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Arturo. Welcome to Behind the Lens. I am so thrilled to have you join me Thank today. Thank you so much. This film, Thanks. The Pastor, is so fabulous. And everything that you do with Wolfgang Cinema, so inspirational. So there's a great, great realism, but a great positivity in what you create and what you do. And th but this film, it really, it's timely, it's topical. It really speaks to the world today. Thank you. Where now? I know the story. The story idea was yours, and then uh, Deborah Goodwin came in and wrote the screenplay and directed. Where did the idea for the pastor come from, and what made you the right person to play him? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm, I'm actually uh, sitting here in the middle of a, an engagement I have at the United Nations in New York, um, That uh, and, and part of my presentation was speaking about how the pastor came to be, and it was uh, I spent three years working with, with kids and, and gangs and communities and jails trying to understand why was it that they, they were growing at such uh, rapid speeds? Uh, people, when they think about gangs, they used to think about the, the U.S. Now, uh, Central America and Mexico are notorious for them, but 91% of the U.S. now has strong gang activity. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I knew that this was a, a growing concern and an urgent matter for the U.S. and some other countries, uh, like I just mentioned, but I, I hadn't found the right story in which to go into that world because it's very easy to, to um, try to sell tickets by exploiting that world and the violence and sort of glamorizing it. And it wasn't until I found the spiritual transformation of this character, this former gang member, gang leader, uh, who finds God in prison and then becomes a, a, an ordained pastor protecting the kids in this community and his community, that I, I was able to go into this, this world and, and uh, uh, you know, find my way into the story. And in terms of the character, I had spent so many, so many years of my life working with these real-life uh, gang members that it was second nature to me by the time I, I, I got in there and, and prepared myself and, and, and then was in front of the camera. So in other words, there is nobody but you that could have played the pastor. It was, <laughs> I, I think it was chosen. I was chosen for that. Uh, i I, I got to be honest with you, yes. Now, you, you're you also a producer on, on the film. So what kind of producing considerations do you have when you're in front of the camera, but you're also juggling all the balls behind the camera? Yeah, you know what? It's, it's, it's for me, it's, it's, it's mostly having a great team around me and having other producers work alongside me because it's such a, 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 uh, an intense uh, ride once you start rolling those cameras that you really have to be prepared. Most of my work was done in pre-production, and um, by the time I headed into the character's shoes, I had this great group of people with me up in New York, where I'm at right now, uh, working on the actual day-to-day. Uh, -day. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you were 
yeah, as an actor, you were in it, I'd say, probably 90% of the film. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> but you also, now, how involved, as a producer, how involved were you with the casting and with the technical end, such as the hiring of Jordan Parrott as your cinematographer, who does an absolutely beautiful, beautiful job, especially with creating and following through on that visual metaphor of light and dark. Yes, yes. No, he's fantastic, and he has a great future ahead of him. Uh, he's a young guy. But yes, you know, I, I, I was, I was uh, very much active throughout the entire process and, and uh, you know, doing the casting and hiring the crew, and, and, and we sat and, and we saw many, many, many different people. Um, so, so everybody that ended up being in our team came in because I think, again, they were chosen and everybody brought their talents and passion to the project. And what you see up there when you see the movie is, is the end collective result. Mm-hmm. Well, I can, I'll say in all honesty, the first thing that caught my eye about the pastor was that Micah Hauptman was in it. I, I've interviewed Micah before. Micah's been on the show before. Uh, and he's always working and he's one of the nicest guys on the planet. And uh, he, yeah, when, when he gets involved in a project, it's not about getting involved just to get a paycheck. It's because he wants to do that project. There's something about that role, that film that speaks to him. And that told me right away, I need to take a look at this. Oh, that's fantastic. And he's, he's, he's amazing. Um, I, I remember, uh, feeling very lucky when, when, uh, he accepted, uh, that role and, and it was a small role in the film, but yet very meaningful. And we knew, uh, about him and his, his talents and, and his trajectory and having him on set, I think uh, for three or four days was, was just fantastic. And I got to, uh, have some you know very intense uh, uh, interactions with him, actor to actor. Uh, a couple of great scenes, mm-hmm. and he's just phenomenal. Yeah, you do have some incredible uh, one-on-ones with uh, him as Captain Rafe, and I got to tell you, some of the more very extremely powerful performances come between you and Frankie G, who plays yeah, well, the gang leader Luca. Um, another amazing. phenomenal actor for sure. Yes. I mean, how did the two? How did the two of you prepare? Because you've got a fight scene with knives, actually machetes. Uh, let's be honest here, machete size. Um, how do you prepare for a scene like that where the emotional level is already heightened going into that? And then the two of you, you're doing this yourself. You weren't bringing in stunt people and standing there and having them do it in your place. Yes, I think that was probably the most challenging scene in, in, in the entire uh, movie because of what you described. It was both physical and emotional. Usually if it's one or the other, then you sort of handle it quite easier. But this was very, very tough. Now Frankie G is, is a, a pro who's been you know, at this for many, many, many years. And on top of that, he's uh, a boxer. So he had a lot of uh, knowledge coming into this. I was really the, the new guy <laughs> in the club and, and I had to train myself and, and we did a bit of stunt uh, coordination before going into the fight, but it was very organic. It was actually uh, uh, improvised uh, most of it at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, now knowing that he, he has boxing behind him as well, were you a little bit afraid about going man on man with him? <laughs> well, it was, it was a contained environment. Uh, 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 but at the end of the day, you, you never know right when the emotions start. Um, <laughs> Just, just uh, <laughs> getting uh, more intense and more intense. Uh, things can happen, but no, no, it, it was, it was all good. 
Now, the kids, the kids that you cast in here are so key. They're so important. A very touching performance and scene comes with David Icono, who plays young Miguel. But each one of these children, especially when the pastor is sitting down with them in this nice, bright light, you know, part of that visual metaphor you have uh, in the church. And it's like, where do you go from here? And they're going, yeah, I'll grow up to be a gang member. Oh, I'll grow up to kill people. It's, And it's sad because this truly is what kids think and feel in today's in some sections of today's society and world how do you go about casting kids for roles and with dialogue like that does that impact you or concern you about how they might be affected or interpret that yes yes of course of course we well, we had a, a again a very long casting process particularly as it relates to the kids we saw you know tens and tens and tens of kids and we wanted uh, a a Kids who, who were who were um, uh, mature enough to be able to come into this world and understand what this world was about, yet at the same time that there needed to be a kindness of spirit and a, and a sort of naivete in there as well, so they could really connect to what the character the pastor was trying to teach him, which is a way of finding God before uh, going into the gangs. Mm-hmm. Now, something that you do very well, and, it, and kudos to Deborah with uh, her script and her direction, the film never gets preachy. It never turns into a, you know, and dare I even say it, you know, a Kirk Cameron hammer, hammer somebody over the head with religion film. This is so organic. The flow is so beautiful. And, this, and the inspiration and spirit of the messaging that you have within this it it's it appeals to everybody it doesn't matter what religion you are there it's about you know decency and kindness and i have really appreciated watching that in the construct is that a main a concern of yours and with wolfgang cinema to maintain that so that it will appeal to people as opposed to turn them off Yes, yes. I mean, that's that's uh, certainly on the one end is by design. That was the mandate and the mission we had going in. Um, obviously, we were very gifted. Uh, we, with the gift to us was was a double gift as a as a writer and a director, um, because it, it's it's one thing to plan uh, going in, and the other one is to execute. And she was able to mm-hmm. do both, and and that was fantastic. And we were very lucky that it worked out. But that is a a, a very strong foundation in what we're doing. Um, in that, you know, even though it's an inspirational and a redeeming tale, you, you, we, we never want to come across as preachy, because I, I, I think that's not what, what audiences are looking for. I think audiences today are looking for, yes, inspiration, but, but they have to feel real and has mm-hmm. to be rooted in reality in such a way that, that, that the, the faith aspect of the journey is organic and not implanted or um, trying to sell anything. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you succeeded you truly succeeded in that in that area, Arturo, and a lot of that success also goes to, um, you know, to the cinematography, uh, because creating that whole visual metaphor with the light and dark that Jordan has has done, you know, the darker alleyways and the and the basement where the gang hangs out, as opposed to the plain but simple, you know, church with you know lights it's not fancy 
but it's light and that that tells you some it hits your subconscious as you're watching it and that was something that really stood out to me in your construction of the film uh oh uh, I think we lost Arturo again. As he said, he is he is in the United Nations um, at in, doing a presentation on the pastor. So we may have, I think we, we dropped out again. Oh, yes. Confirmation. If he calls back, we will, we will definitely get back on the line with him. But we'll take a break right now and we'll be back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And I think we have you back on the line, Arturo. Are you there? I am here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I was... Uh, I lost the connection there. Oh, you know, it's you're probably in a dungeon. You know, you're probably scoping out a new location for your next film, and you're in the bowels of the United Nations where there's no cell signal. It's it's I'm in a big vault here. Yes, it's it's my, it was my fault. Sorry see, we'll, see, we'll just see that works. We'll just we'll just go with that. <laughs> now I I know the film is opening on January the 25th. Correct? Yes, yes, January 25th in 400 theaters across the U.S. And this is this is going to be a Fathom event, is it not? Yes, it is. And what is what is the benefit to you of having this as a Fathom event? So a lot of people know about Fathom events. TCM does it with a lot of classic films now, you know, four or five times a year. Um, they partner up with Fathom and put these films on the big screen that normally wouldn't be there. Is this a reason for for Wolfgang to partner up with Fathom? Yes, you know, it was an interesting experience after we wrapped the film and, and uh, I was looking for distributors to uh, partner with to take it to, their core, uh, to the core audience that we knew we had aligned for the film. It was very hard for, for, for me to find someone who really got the vision mm-hmm. and, uh, and the, the potential behind coming together and Fathom got it like nobody else. I mean, they said, listen, why would you go uh, trying to slowly to build your, your audience in two theaters in L.A., two in New York, the, the traditional indie uh, platform release mm-hmm. with no guarantee that you'll last more than three or four days out there. If you really have this core audience, you know, we'll, we'll bet on you and we'll, we'll do this in a, you know, in a grand scale. And we started with 200 sites across the U.S. And because of the demand that we got, we're now in 400. Wow. Wow. And I know that people can go to the website for the pastor, uh, yes. www.thepastorfilm.com. That's correct. Yes, yes. You can go there to uh, the ticket section. You can either buy individual tickets with Fathom or group sales through us. Hey, that's, I mean, I have an aunt down in Omaha, Georgia, that I am sure that she and her church ladies will probably be definitely looking into going to see this movie. And they go as, like to go as groups, I think. So I'm going to have to make sure that they go to your website and take a look at that. Please, please. Also, a customer service number there. They can call and uh, help with anything they need. Fabulous. Now, what next up, you have Truth Seeker after this, after the pastor? You know what? It's actually, I, I think the next one to, to uh, come into fruition will be uh, another one called Sanctuary, which is a, a, uh, a police story set in L.A. 
that deals with immigration, human trafficking, and sexual slavery. Wow. Any idea when that one may be uh, hitting the big screen? Uh, listen, we're working very hard to start that one <laughs> and another one about a uh, MMA fighter, um, which is also has you know has me very excited. Oh my gosh! Well, I can't wait to see what you and Wolfgang Cinema you know bring us next, Arturo. I think your work in the Pastor is fabulous. I think the film is something that everybody should see, and it is so well done extremely well done film and i i just commend commend you on what uh, what your mission mission statement is essentially for wolfgang and the direction of your work it's fabulous thank you thank you so much i just have a big favor to ask of you anything thank you how do i persuade you to come on the road with me uh, i think nobody's ever gotten the films you know as as good as you have uh, i need you with me <laughs> <laughs> anytime you need me just call Fantastic. We will do. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Arturo, thank you so much. And you will come back on the show again, I trust? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, very soon. Fabulous. Thank you, Arturo, and have fun at the United Nations. Thank you. I sure will. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Arturo Mouichant, the star of The Pastor, also conceived the story and producer Wolfgang Cinema, some, they have some fabulous, fabulous films. Uh, but yes, January 25th, a Fathom event. You can go to thepastorfilm.com, and all of this will be on the video uh, when it gets done and up later in the week uh, on Elias Entertainment Movie Shark DeBlore YouTube channel and on the website. Similarly, the girls in the band... That, as Judy said, there is now a special DVD edition. You can go to thegirlsintheband.com, pick that up with some never-before-seen footage. So there's a lot of good stuff happening now with the first of the year. So I think, do we have time for one more clip from Chivo? Okay, we are going to bounce to, let's see... I don't have things printed out today because my printer broke at 2 o'clock this morning, people. So when you watch the show and I'm looking at a computer monitor, that's why. Uh, <laughs> something else, Chivo not only is concerned about the cinematography of the films that he works on, but he has his hands and is involved with every other aspect because uh, costuming, sound, the flow, wind, wind moving, trees moving, all of that plays into the visual design. Sound design of this film is very important of The Revenant and is something that, unbeknownst to me, Alejandro uh, Inaritu started out in radio. So let's hear Chivo talk about sound. Uh, something that really helps a lot the, this idea of immersion is, is the sound design mm-hmm. is unbelievable. Yeah. Alejandro, you know, he used to be in radio. And he's very knowledgeable of the power of, of, of the audio design. And he worked very carefully. I, I, I visit them many times, and he's exhausting. I mean, he's <laughs> going from these to the, from the macro to the micro, analyzing every particle of the sound. Yeah. And the same with the image. But it, it was great to see a, a director uh, using the tools with this uh, mm-hmm. craftsmanship, this this amazing uh, use of, of, of the top of his game. Well, and adding to that visual look, 
are the lenses that he's that Chivo's using on that lovely Alexa 65. So very, very wide lenses. Mm -hmm. You know, the lenses we use are, are lenses that in a normal Hollywood movie they would use once mm -hmm. for maybe one big landscape or mm -hmm. something like that. But what we've done is we've taken all these very, very wide lenses and used them as our normal lenses. Mm -hmm. And um, they do bend a little bit and they do distort a little bit the faces, which we also wanted because Leo's so damn pretty and Tom is so beautiful. And we don't want them to look pretty. And we want them to look like trappers, you know, beat up real trappers. And, and I think this lens does all that. It, it, it makes these guys look more like these characters it, it, it relates them to the environment it immerses the audience in this mm -hmm. world and it, it gives you more depth depth mm -hmm. of field so there's constantly you can see the mountains in the distance and the wind changing and the clouds moving and all this that was very important for Alejandro because it's a movie about uh, about life, survival. the end is survival. It's yeah. it, 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 you want to see all the contradictions of the beauty and the terror of you know the the roughness of nature. Well, and anybody's even seen the trailers for the Revenant, you will notice immediately that yes, the lenses and the dirt have Leo no longer looks pretty. So. Tom Hardy still looks really good in those lovely leather pants that costumer Jackie West made for him. Uh, and actually, there uh, next week, hopefully, we'll, we'll hear some more on uh, The Revenant. Next week, joining us live is going to be writer, director, producer Joe, and Joe Pepitone talking about The New Jersey Devil. It is a low-budget, no-budget film that I say with the greatest and utmost love. Um, and it is laugh out loud funny. It is hands down one of the funniest films I have seen in a while. And it is something that I would love to see a big studio get hold of and really put polish on and uh, really beef it up because it is that hilarious. Another great film that's going to be coming out, Moonwalkers. Ron Perlman and Rupert Grint. You won't believe what you see. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.